Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media this week. This week, uh, hello, it's me, Russell. Sorry about all that. This week I spoke with Gail Bradbrook from Extinction Rebellion. Gail is the co-founder of the international social movement Extinction Rebellion. This is not a drill, an, extinct, an extinction. Why can't I say it? Why do I think it's called Extinction Rebellion? When will I get over this feeling? Anyway, Gail was a wonderful, committed, devoted and sincere, open-minded, educated, wonderful woman, a great communicator. We talked at length about Extinction Rebellion, perhaps the areas in which it could develop and grow, addressed many of the criticisms of Extinction Rebellion we've all read about and are aware of like um that tube train business it's very interesting conversation so i hope you enjoy it but before we get into that i'm just going to promote me to you a person who's already accepted me like someone wanting yet more attention from a person who's giving them attention go on my youtube channel right there's these spiritual videos and clips just russell brown's youtube channel subscribe to it click that little bell it gives me more power with the algorithm the algorithm if you think of it, is like a malevolent god that wants to destroy us. Like all big tech, it's, what are we going to do? How are we the humans? You know, we're already at war with AI and big tech. We've got to get it by its cyber ghoulies and wrangle it into some control. So look at my uh, YouTube show called The Not Too Late Show. Follow me on Instagram or TikTok or linky-dink-dink-dink-dink in because I've like, been watching Gary V videos and he says you have to do that. Sign up to my mailing list, russellbrand.com, and you'll be the first to be told about my upcoming shows and receive exclusive content not found on my social media or YouTube channel. These will be some photos of me just relaxing, maybe outside a barn. Maybe I'm looking off. Maybe I'm chewing some straw. Maybe I'm petting a goat. You don't know. We'll never know. Well, we will know because you'll follow me. Follow me at Rusty Rockets on Twitter, Russell Brand on Instagram. And here are some comments about the last podcast with Elizabeth Oldfield, JDS Go. Rusty Rockets, nice work throwing deracination into your interview. Thanks. I've been trying to use that word for ages. Deracinate. Deracination. What other words am I looking to use now? Miscegenation. That's sort of a bit of a racist word for inter like meaning interbreeding and stuff. I don't know if the word's racist. It describes a racist concern about that, you know, interbreeding. If such a thing can be said. Brass Wire Brush. Fantastic discussion and fantastic guest. Never heard of Elizabeth Oldfield before, but she's great, intelligent and authentic. Yes, I found her to be the same way. Thomas Rudnicki. Love this chat. You both made numerous points that resonate with me. I'm saddened at the small number of people who can have these open types of conversations without someone becoming highly offended or put off by the topic. Thank you for this window into sane and welcome discourse. It's a shame that I was using that voice because it's actually thanking me for sane and welcome discourse over topics that truly matter. Best to you. Thanks, Thomas. Sorry for the voice. I just wanted to express myself. Return to Innocence says, I love her. It's so true that the Bible can be interpreted in many ways. People see what they want to see. And not just the Bible, remember. Probably everything. Everything we look at is covered in the inflection of our innermost being. For example, now I'm looking at Jenny May Finn, the producer of this show. 
And I must say, I don't know if I'm inflecting this or if it's objectively there, but I'm looking at the very heart of darkness, malevolence and cruelty. <laughs> this week I've been reading Angela Nagel's wonderful book called Kill All Norbies. Normies, not Norbies. The Norbies, they can just carry on. It was recommended to me by my friend Pope. I contacted An uh, Adam Curtis to see if he was reading it. He's already read it, such as you might expect from Adam Curtis. It's a book about the online culture wars from 4chan and Tumblr to Trump and the alt-right. It helps you to understand how mainstream media and politics has become as polarised as it is and suggests that many of the themes and ideas that are currently dominating the news cycle emerged from relatively insular online spaces such as 4chan and Tumblr. Very interesting. Also, it talks about, in a sense... I don't know what it talks about. You've got to read it, man. You'll love it. It's made me feel like, fuck, we need some sort of transcendent ideology where people get in touch with, can there be such a thing as deeper truths in this day and age? Well, anyway, if you want to learn about purpose and meaning, have a look at that. And if you want to learn a little bit more about it right away, have a listen to me talking to Gail Bradbrook excuse me, about um, Extinction Rebellion. It's a very interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it. I'll talk to you in a minute afterwards, although for me, it will literally be now. So that's how time works. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Gail Bradbrook, thank you so much for coming on Under the Skin and talking with me. You must have had an interesting couple of weeks with Extin Extinction Rebellion, which you uh, are one of the founders of. Of course, it's a famously leaderless organisation. It's been a, a high-profile week competing in the UK news cycle, at least with uh, ongoing Brexit coverage to be the sort of emblematic issue of, uh, 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 of this last couple of weeks, at least. How have you found it? How are you feeling? And uh, you know, let's just crack on with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, it was amazing last April when it was sunny and we were in communities together and we had boats and music systems and all the rest of it. And this rebellion was very different in that it was raining and the police nicked our kitchens and our disabled loos and our stuff. And I felt like, uh, from my perspective, it meant we had to sort of dig deeper into our resilience as a movement and into our connection and um it was incredible times uh, there was a lot of laughter and a lot of fun um the ridiculousness of the media was there you know there was a we they were for example they were going to um interview the paralympian james brown who managed to get on top of an aeroplane mm. despite being frightened of heights and the next minute they cancelled because they wanted mr broccoli instead <laughs> And if you saw the arrested a broccoli from the animal rebellion, they so. thought that that's the angle to, <laughs> to, to take promote in an existential crisis. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love a bit of British slapstick nonsense humour. So, I, but but it's also kind of there was that ongoing desire to make us look bad, you know, and make us look like hypocrites and all the rest of it, which obviously we are, no doubt about it. I remember 
my own um, brushes with the establishment when I was, I was reading Extinction Rebellion stuff I've got friends that are I I involved and I hope soon to count you among them that uh, that when I was involved in let's say activism that um, hypocrisy is an early charge it's a difficult charge to deny in almost any idealistic circumstance unless your ideology is selfishness and commerce and individualism then you're free from the charge of hypocrisy but you're contributing yeah, yeah, to yeah. a far greater problem yeah well i started doing it as a multi-choice question because you can either be a hypocrite because you once bought some single-use plastic and or took a flight or you can be like my friend donica mccarthy who's really deep green and contributes energy to the system because he's so green wow. and then he's seen as hair shirt and he wants us back in the cave so you can't win or you're like you've got the politics of envy because you haven't got much money or or you're like a champagne socialist you know um it, or, or you you're a fucking dole scrounger and you need to get a job and a haircut or you're um, a middle class and privileged you, you can't win can you you know it, it's so just like yeah whatever can we just move on and talk about the actual situation that we're in what are the primary uh, transitions you've noticed in the between sort of preparatory and planning stages which i know for you involved some s sacred work and a lot of reflection to the um to the transition into action how how distinct does it feel and they're ongoing cycles and like certainly every time before I do some media I'm, I, I say some prayers or before I give a, a talk uh, there's lots of ceremony happening while we're on the streets so um, people went around washing people's feet for example or uh, holding grief circles so we don't keep these things separate from the action of being on the streets and actually that's why it's managed to be um, a non-violent movement because people are, are holding themselves um, in a beautiful way on the streets you know that 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 place where we need to deal with our traumas is is not something it's not like having your tonsils removed is it is the way, way i once um saw a ted talk talking about racism but any of this stuff it, you can't have your tonsils removed you have to keep cleaning your teeth it's an ongoing issue dealing with how trauma surfaces and shows itself um but yeah there's been a lot of planning there's a mm. lot of hard work behind the scenes mm. for sure What's it like? What are the biggest ch challenges as you move into this phase? Whilst I recognise you remain in dialogue with, as you've just described, it's some sort of an ongoing symbiotic process. Um, now that you're dealing with, say, public opinion and authority, what? How? How has the challenge altered? What have you learned I mean, from it? F I guess for me, uh, you know, taking the definition of patriarchy has been scarcity, separation and powerlessness. The challenge for me is how as a movement we handle those wounds. Uh, less what the system does to us because we are the system. It's in us, isn't it? So yes. uh, Mickey Kashtan, who I really love reading her stuff, says that um, what we need to do is be vulnerable and bring tenderness and mourn for what we've lost. And how can you... How can you bring that into the work that you're doing? Because obviously conflicts arise and mistakes get made. And it's how do you stay in humility as a movement and together? Because this thing could blow up by the end of the year and be finished. But I think what really needs to happen is to keep re-strategizing in terms of like, what do we need to do next? I'm interested in a debt refusal I was talking to you about. Uh, so it's like what practical things are we going to do? But also like, how are we feeling together? You know, and it's not, it's a, a million different perspectives in any given movement but you know the power lies in the collective politically Hannah Arendt's political theory and I agree with that so like are we actually together 
is there enough unity is there enough love frankly yeah i I really like the story you told me gail about um the march to checkers would you do that again for us sure yeah so uh this was uh tori and lou and a group that were um had decided that they wanted to bring love to power it was on the equinox i was actually away in a ceremony myself praying for the rebellion and so they walked along what's called um, the mary michael lines so it's a ley line to checkers with the idea of bringing love to power and they sang this teze song you know this really beautiful harmonic song uh, it comes from the Christian tradition, which was about let love lead the way and listen to your heart. And uh, because they had kids with them, there was breastfeeding mums and toddlers kicking off and nappies had to be changed. You know what it's like, you know, you're like uh, any sense of timing's gone. And they were two hours late getting to checkers and they were, I guess, thinking they were late than they intended walked into a farm shop and boris johnson was there these often feels like these synchronicities and magic happens in extinction rebellion i've had a lot of those experiences right thing happening at the right time anyway they start to sing to him this beautiful teze song and they put their hands on him and he put his hand on his heart and started to cry uh started to fill up and started to shake as well and uh, it happened for a few minutes he recomposed himself and he went to his girlfriend apparently and said um where where did these people come from it's like they emerged from the earth and one of them said yeah we had a message for you and he put his hand on his heart and said listen to your heart let love lead the way and then he called us a bunch of uh what was it um inconvenient crusties or uncooperative crusties everybody started putting it like wearing it as a badge of honor and um that you know in the rebellion he said that it was a bit of bravado wasn't it honestly uh and then we sent our press release reminding him that this thing had happened and that no one's beyond redemption and i reflected on it that night and thought gosh what we really need is for him or his dad or somebody to come and have a dialogue with us and it was already happening it was already being arranged his dad joined us on the streets that can be problematic for some people from the outside looking and thinking god these middle class privileged people are chatting to the like neo-fascists or whatever i guess our theory of change is to believe in the power of love and that communication and dialogue and listening is always needed you know Something I want to ask you, I wonder if it will make sense as I ask it. I'm friends with the filmmaker Adam Curtis, you know who he is? Um, He's a genius, I think. And we were talking about the sort of, let's you know, this about a couple of years ago, we were having this conversation about um, sort of the emergence of uh, and prominence of identity politics, the kind of uh, culture wars and um, rise of nationalism, mm. these kind of, sort of mm. cultural areas. And one of the things that we discussed was this kind of, uh, 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 the, what would be uh, termed somewhat as the bourgeoisie and intelligentsia's abandonment of the working class, a kind of severance from the sort of economically driven aspect of social justice in favour of identitarian aspect, both of which are, valuable but one of which has quite significant social consequences if abandoned and and, and, and talking about the sort of uh, the coverage that I, I've seen of Extinction Rebellion the class uh, conversation is one that comes up and the, I, I wonder if that's some what you're obviously I know it's something you've considered and I, I'm curious as to how you would look to resolve that yeah, I mean, my dad was a coal miner, by the way, and um, 
Claire Farrell's working class, Simon Bramwell, four of the co-founders out of the 10 people that got this thing going are working class people. So it's not like I don't feel personally a big separation from uh, working class people. But I th- I think, I mean, with the it's a, it's a contradiction in so-called, people don't like this term, identity politics, that you uh, talk in a certain way and you talk including about class. And I saw this sign that made me cringe. If I'm really honest, it said solidarity with the working class. You know, there is no the working class. It's very other in, isn't it? Um, and uh, ultimately, this system is, you know, that working class people are on the front line, aren't they? And in other countries are on the front line of the crisis. So, like, the crisis is definitely already here in this country if you're homeless, for example. Um, the system has to change. I think what we're doing is bringing a wedge in of talking about climate change because it will animate the people with the most power to help make the change. I don't know if that's really answered your question that um, the movements have often started with people of privilege. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, Gandhi was the top of his caste system. Emmeline Pankhurst was upper middle class, you know, Nelson Mandela was the chief of his tribe. It's like how then you create a movement that people feel that there's a part for them in it. It's happening, Russell. The, we are in working class I communities. I think that class privilege yeah. is too, not class privilege, but sort of, sort of class condemnation, as it were, is a sort of a two, or prejudice, is a two-way street. And like, uh, it's not necessarily like a, that... Um, I don't think it's helpful to judge people on the basis of their backgrounds or your perception of their backgrounds from any direction. It's class is a construct, and whilst it might suggest different kind of social experiences, I don't think anyone foregoes the right to be an active participant in social movements as a result of you know that, I think that's a ridiculous perspective. And it's quite likely, obviously, from the examples that you've cited, that having uh, not living with your uh, shoulder to the grindstone concerned with your zero hour contracts and your poverty might afford eg you know some of the social activists and um, pioneers that you've just listed the just the time the opportunity the scope the, the space to get involved in those kind of issues what i'm interested in is the sense that people who are in poverty feel that this issue doesn't affect them and of course one aspect it would be of course you know com- education and communication you know if, if the thing that we all live on dies then there's no one going to be exempted from that but also what emotionally and viscerally will engage people that currently feel like you know more like dragging someone off the roof of a tube train rather than joining someone on the roof of a tube train yeah sure 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 i mean when i um have given the talk that i give heading for extinction and like more working class community like the points i'm making is what we're doing to nature right now if there's like a perceived issue like uh, in Australia the horses didn't have enough water and so the immediate reaction from the system was we have to kill the horses off you know uh, a cull they call it don't they um, or there's birds that are under pressure because of in this country and then they want to kill the ravens and I just like basically saying to working class people you know like you're next in line basically you know the system won't look after you It'll want your kids for the wars fighting over scarce resources it's going to want 
um, you know, when the food, when there's not much food around, it's not going to be coming your way sort of thing. You know, like you're on the front line, but because you can't feel it right now, but you just have to look at what the system's doing right now to you and what's coming down the line when society collapses, which many credible commentators think is inevitable. Uh, I think when you are um, on the front line of a really toxic system, then that's what's in your face, isn't it? It's like the immediacy of it. And I think there is a what you might call a messaging pivot that Extinction Rebellion might choose to do at some point, which just starts talking about the overall system and its impact on everybody, which may be the right way to go. I think you have to get a strength of the movement first, you know. Yeah, that's right. And as you sort of said earlier, Gal, there's... It, there's a a uh, assumption that criticism and condemnation is what's going to be required and what's going to be broadcast and what's going to be printed. So there's not really a version of this where you won't be condemned. It'll be condemned because of lack of diversity. It'll be condemned because it's inconvenient, condemned if it seems too new age. One of the things I'm interested in is your uh, openness and explicitness around sacred principles and transcendent ideas. And are you concerned that this similarly will be used to undermine the... Uh, credibility of the movement I think it helps that I have a PhD in molecular biophysics when I'm talking about that so I do waft that around a little bit just as a kind of you know this, there's actually as you know the science behind some of the conversations around spirituality and basically for me it's an experiential thing anyway I've got I've had my own experiences that make me want to do things some people in the movement find it tricky you know and I've talked about how I'd like to see a mass psychedelic civil disobedience but that was just a personal opinion um, so it's not just outside it could, we, we, we can be ridiculed but we need a paradigm shift and to me uh, the paradigm shift won't come without at least some of us, I'm sure you know about the sort of shift to teal consciousness that's happening at the minute. So No, f- talk me through okay. it. Okay, oh that's a really interesting piece. Um, so there is this paradigm, th- there is a shift in consciousness happening. It sounds very hippie-ish when you talk like that and I think it's really important that you, one of the main things from Extinction Rebellion is trying to remain a broad church that if you have a very scientific paradigm and um, you, you, you want to focus on uh, current politics and affecting current politics, there's a space for you. If you have a paradigm that says, I want to walk the Mary Markle line singing and praying, then there's a space for you in it. And that, as again, Mickey Kashtan talks about both and. You know, sometimes things are set up against each other, but they're not in opposition. No. You know, they're just they're just different perspectives and different needs. So the um, there's a system called spiral dynamics, and you look at different levels of consciousness that have happened throughout history, and and they check in online at different stages, and they check in online throughout your lifetime actually it's really cool Uh, politicians have used it it's something you can measure by asking people questions and it's not like you're just one or the other so like the beige layer is the layer that babies are in it's like all about needs like i need i need the toilet i'm hungry or whatever and it moves up through animistic religions and different and they and you know when they came in online for humanity roughly from the geological record right how how Uh, um, well, I, I, I mean, give us an example. So, you, like, like, so the orange layer is the science layer, which came yeah. in the 17th century. So we know yeah. about that. Um, some people, you might argue, are sort of a bit stuck in that paradigm. And then the green layer is the progressive left. Um, so it's the idea of pluralism, and there's lots of different. Um, it's interesting the environment inequality. Uh, so, and then the red layer is the more tribal layer. 
um, you know, it's like I'm I'm into this tribe. So like when you're watching West Ham, your team, yes. like when I'm watching Forest Green Rovers, it's like you're in your tribal, you know, there's nothing wrong with these consciousnesses. It's just, you know, there's a blue layer that's more conservative values about my family. You know, I, I recognise and honour those values. I just don't only just have them. You know, I also recognise that um, everybody's children are my children, you know, it, it, the better part of me does, you know. So no, what's interesting is there's an emergence of teal consciousness and that's a kind of quite a leap and in teal consciousness you can see the other values and you recognize and honor them and appreciate their usefulness and their role and why they're there and um and so it's like not wanting to feel in these separations and what's really interesting is the teal consciousness well, there's turquoise above that gets into the oneness and stuff but um the teal one is um has three main bits to it one is um vulnerability another is it's p about purpose and this and the third one is it's about self-organizing decentralized organizing so if you read frederick lalu reinventing organizations businesses are emerging into these colors so like a mafia business would be red it's tribal you know you do what the boss says you get killed <laughs> like a, a a corporation that's all about making money would use the scientific layer to work out how to optimize profit then you've had the corporate social responsibility green layer but there's an emergent teal layer in business right that's purpose-led and that's where we need to go to what's a business that's an example of that um i'm going to say its name wrong because it's from the netherlands so apologies to the dutch people but there's something like Burtsburg or something it's this um business that focuses on community nursing and they're so good because they're self-organizing um and they they're, they're happy to get profit because profit helps them to get behind their purpose but they're so behind their purpose they got 80 percent of the market share and they started to teach their competitors how to be like them for free so that they could have some of the market share back because they wanted the whole market to be about ind really good independent nursing. Do you see what I mean? The purpose is what drives them. And like, that's my feeling. I'm having, it's embarrassing what a good time I'm having in this social movement in a way because like I feel so in purpose and that's what I see when people go through this process which is face the abyss of these times, grieve, and then decide to do something about it. You, you you get through, your heart breaks open, you step into courage, and then you're in purpose. And I see that in this movement, and that's the power that's in it that's been driven by, like, a grieving. And some people, you know, Daniel Pinchbeck wrote about this, that the transition of humanity will happen because we'll face a collective trauma. And there are many traumas in the world. There's the trauma of how, you know, racism shows up in the world. There's the trauma of what's happening to homeless people. But part of the trauma is that you can separate yourself off from that. You can feel powerless about it and, think, and, and ignore it, you know, or you can feel in the drama of your own life. There's something about the um, ecological crisis where we can't, we can ignore it, but it won't ignore us. You know, it is going to get us all eventually. And you, you literally, if you've got children now, they are going to live through the times. They are going to live through the consequences. Like it's baked into the science, you know, unless we do something semi-miraculous, which we could if we put our minds to it. So there's something here about, like with an addict, you know, we are a deeply addicted, traumatised society. We're facing 
we've hit rock bottom like we're literally in the sixth mass extinction event or extermination event better said you know life on earth's being killed off by us our own future's being killed off and the worst case scenario is a permian mass extinction when 97 percent of all life dies you know the latest ipcc report says that the permafrost melting that's the mechanism that's what leads to the um the, the mass extinction the, the really full-on mass extinction event so anyway we're in that you face that and then to humanity can do a, it needs a step change doesn't it it needs enough of us to do a step change and i'm w- witnessing that happening it's very exciting but it's really tense because it's like you haven't got any time hmm. yes with your um degree there in biochemistry is it molecular mo- biophysics yeah. molecular biophysics uh, you uh, alluded to there being correlatives between this uh, knowledge of biochemistry and certain spiritual principles could you just talk to me about those correlations i mean i'm i'm going to be relatively superficial about it but but basically i so i did molecular biophysics and one of the things you did was to grow crystals of proteins to uh, shoot x-rays at them and then you can work out their structure uh, and it would be really difficult to grow crystals. Um, you didn't know how to do it, and then suddenly they'd start to grow, and then they grow all over the world. It's a bit the same as when the blue tits, one of them would learn how to peck through the, um, you know, the old-fashioned milk bottles and get the cream from the top, and then suddenly all the blue tits knew how to do it. And it didn't make sense that it would be that information was being transmitted. It, it, it makes more sense in the in the sense of like universal consciousness that there's some way in which the universe has learned how to do something thin and that and 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 so um the idea that things can be purpose-led it's called teleology um is that that there are you know they're not well looked at but there are branches of science that that that, that use that and essentially the scientific process is come up with a model and see if it fits to the data you know so mm. uh my ex-husband's a particle physicist and he was saying you know one way you can explain quantum mechanics is through the pilot wave theory that there's a a, a leading wave that that's driving the purpose in a certain direction and so you know in the day-to-day reality when i'm talking like this the scientist in me when i'm praying and so on feels like mm, what you're doing gail <laughs> you know like but my experience is if i make the prayers in service to life on earth things magic happens actually yes and there's as much evidence that consciousness is local as there is that there's evidence that consciousness is non-local by which i mean it's difficult to prove i think it's better than that Russell. i think actually what the situation is is that if you try to explain brain science as an emergent property so like you know consciousness is emergent of the, the brain, organic brain yeah if you try to explain it that way it doesn't work very well it doesn't fit to like you know what you get from the data if you use the idea that there's a universal consciousness it fits to the data better i suppose there's resistance to that idea because of the well, implication the the because that means that there is oneness and that we are not separate separate from one another and to return to your uh, uh, earlier um this paradigm to which you're opposing i think it's that mickey kashtan is that the person you keep mm. uh, mm-hmm. referencing scarcity separation powerlessness i was thinking that of course in, like in my apparent and curated reality based on um, material perception i'm not dealing especially with uh, 
you know, the subparticular, submolecular world. It's not something that I'm <laughs> dealing with or the outer reaches of space, but I, that both of these things are apparent and present. And I suppose what that indicates is that our structures, our system, our society are a reflection of processes that have passed through human consciousness. And when people talk about, say, patriarchy, it's a suggestion that there have been predominant traits in the establishment of the system that... Uh, we currently live within which has been further broken down as to being based on scarcity separation and powerlessness the uh, incorporation of uh, the the sacred and the feminine need not necessarily be exclusive or at, at the cost of maleness need it gail it well, it's not, you know, these are just words that we use as a model, aren't they? I mean, the, the rise in feminine is supposed to be about the value of emotion and intuition and feelings and so on. So it's it, it's not that's as just in men or male-bodied people as it is in women. I think um, Ian McGilchrist's research is really interesting, isn't it, about the master and his emissary. So he talks about the domination of the left hemisphere over the right hemisphere and the right hemisphere you can see it happens for animals as well you know the right hemisphere is checking everything out around it's more holistic it's got it's got the big picture and that's where the sense of connection comes from and then the left hemisphere is on the detail so if you like a the example Ian uses if you're a bird trying to like pick some grains out among some gravel you've got to look on the detail but you're also got to be surveying the wholeness because there's the, like a cat about to come and eat you uh, but what our current society does is it gets us more too much into the right into the left hemisphere um, there's a, a really brilliant TED talk, by the way, by Jill Bolte Taylor. Have you seen that one? A Stroke oh, yeah, of Insight. Yeah, you know, that was amazing. It does it, you know, where, and again, I think it always helps. Uh, it shouldn't do, but it does help. She's a brain scientist and she realizes she's having a stroke uh, and her left brain's being closed down. That happened to me on um, Iboga, a plant medicine. Well, I'm not surprised. <laughs> what do you expect doing a boga? What do you think's going to happen? It's going to shut bits of your brain down. I tell you what I thought was going to happen because I was absolutely absolutely crapping myself i thought it was going to be horrendous but it was one of the most beautiful experiences i've ever had thankfully i like that when you were talking about your um dialogue with your higher self T tell us a little bit uh, about this these experiences you've had with uh, uh, psychedelics so uh, y you know one of the things i had to do was go and travel for it which is not cool i had to take a flight and uh, just well, that hard is it know, hard work is it every time you take an airplane i have to justify it <laughs> no. how did you come here on a solar panel bicycle <laughs> I would have done if I could have. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so I went to do... I, I've been trying to start mass civil disobedience since 2010. And um, I knew that there was something in me getting in the way and also something that I didn't understand and didn't know. So I had um, processed and done a lot of work around sex and love addiction. And I, I've literally actually done 25 years of inner work and there was still this piece that felt stuck. What was that? What was what? What felt stuck? Um, in in misery, actually, in in anxiety. And Do you so, think that you get connected, attached to a, another person, and sort of somehow make them well, a, a I mean, deity? You know, it's more the dopamine hit you get when you're having that this like sexually charged. You know, it lasts for about eighteen months, doesn't it? That was my version of the addiction. And By then, chemically, I suppose, yes, hormonally, that that's what's happening. So it's like soothing the anxiety, which was a, a an old wound. So that's what was, and it was really. I did this year with this guy who worked with CB cognitive behavioural therapy, and that was really helpful. I'd already had a marriage wrecked by.
by it and I was already using this modality called co-counseling so I'd had some way of processing and so when I looked at the 12 steps I realized I'd been through a lot of the 12 steps like accidentally sort of thing um, and then I decided I didn't even know it was sex and love addiction at the time and then when I realized it was kind of it, it wasn't inactive harm in my life but it was bothering me you know it's like a, a drip feeding of of distraction of, really is how it is and it's like well why am I doing this to myself you know this kind of like stories about people thing so I went and did this ther- therapy anyway and it was it really really helpful anybody who's got an addiction there are people that are experts they know how to help you get out of this behavior patterns you know so anyway um but we got so far and it was like it was clear about this trauma that's still there and you find a way to manage around it which was useful but part of me was like I've had enough of it so I had been working with plant medicines and I thought I'm ready to do like a big thing and I went and worked with a boga from the Tabernanthi boga tree and then also did cambo from the frog medicine and free ayahuascas in a two-week period which was a bit full-on to say the least right tummy ache (laughs) (laughs) i did quite a lot of vomiting i have to say getting well they say but yeah what happened on the iboga it's very frightening it generally it's really good for addictions um and it it kind of closed down my left brain and it meant that i could feel my brain being rewired during it Mm, i like the sound of that Mm. You could feel like... You I mean, were... I could feel things being snipped and, and sorted out. And there was this person who was talking to me about it, about an inch into my right brain. She had my voice and she was quite bossy. She kept saying, stop it, when I was having a negative thought or a, like a, a feeling in my body of anxiety. And she'd say, stop it. And then this snip would happen. And, if you know, I'd been shown the night before because I'd been given a little as a taster session, the interaction between neural pathways in your brain and the biochemistry in your general body and how it's like stored memories and stuff. And uh, so I had this sense that, you know, some it was like the happiness channel needed reinforcing. And what's happened since is I'm definitely a much happier person, definitely less anxious. Mm. Uh, but I'm not, I don't feel attached to being happy. Like happy is just a thing, isn't it? Like when you're really, really miserable, but you're actually in it and there's a reason for it. That's okay as well with me. Is your sense that this, these phenomena are occurring even if they are not visible to your conscious self, i.e. other aspects of consciousness are present if inaccessible without the intervention? I, I've experienced three bits of myself now. There was When I was shitting myself, taking the aboga, because it takes hours to take the flood dose, it's called, I was kind of singing to keep myself calm. But, um, and uh, I, I just, there was a part of myself, it's a much more esoteric part that's like I would call the spirit that was just, you know, like my left brain ego wanted to fucking run off and say, I'm not doing this, you know. But there was a spirit it was like, we were here and we were always coming here and this is what needs to happen. I've experienced that bit of myself sometimes. And it, who knows if it's even myself, right? But And then the left brain is like the chatter, isn't it? It's having a, a right old story. It's creating loads of stories all the time. I mean, I'm so interested in my own stories it's boring isn't it at times but and then the right brain is the connected one but the the person there that's like saying gail do this now do that now i i i I ended up giving her a name and i you know actually as a woman you can feel into her through your womb if you have a womb um but it's 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 the instinct yeah it's a bit that and the more i sort of trust that now i've met her i feel like i actually met this bit of my brain 
but it's, it's a bit of a weird thing to kind of realize that you're a feels like a bit of a trick of the universe you know like you're like a bit of like left brain a bit of right brain some other bit and then and, and then all this physicality like you're it's just like these ooh, these things get put together and they make a grape you know or they make a gale or a rustle and then it's just going to go again isn't it so that sense that you're actually just the universe. I think I liked how Charles Eisenstein said it. He says, I'm the universe Charlesing. You know, this is a universe doing a galesing. And it's and and when as I was saying earlier, that piece about purpose, when I feel that, I just feel like I'm in this flesh because I've got something I'm supposed to do. I don't know why. I don't know what the greater mystery is here. You know, the moon seems relevant to me at times. Now I sound really mental, but, you know, there's, there's something about the moon that just reminds me that there's a bigger mystery at play and just not to try and work it out, you know, just to be in surrender to it. And But, you know, genuinely, when I have worked with plant medicines and you're all over the place in your brain, I'm like, God, can I get back in my body and just be in the purpose and get on with the job that I'm supposed to do? That's what it feels like. Yes, because even though a lot of these things sound extraordinary or unusual or novel, talk of different aspects of consciousness, sub-molecular worlds, universal intercommunication, for our systems and the world to change, for more people to feel connected, purposeful, happy even, these closed mental and political systems are going to need to open and change. Change means that we're going to have to think thoughts we've not previously thought, take actions we haven't previously taken. And it's curious, isn't it? Because we're having the Saturday that we're having this chat on is that that Brexit debate's happening right now. And like, because I do, I do a lot of, um, you know, I live in 12 step land mostly. Mm -hmm. What's incredible about 12 step stuff as well as the uh, as you said your own inadvertent discovery of the universal principles which are within the 12 Mm -hmm. steps which i believe to be a kind of a method for Mm. creating i don't believe it's explicitly in the steps they're a method for creating awakening Mm. a recognition of the construction of your individual self and i like what you said earlier gail about there's something analogous about an individual's consciousness and the projections that we experience on the in the external apparently out there world and uh, overcoming this idea of uh, an an intransigent, solid, static, egoic individual in order to access aspects of consciousness that are present, thriving and abiding within us, but inaccessible to this sort of central perceptive unit which we call self. Uh, The the 12 Steps is a beautiful tool for unravelling that, you know, firstly acknowledging problems, second believing in change, thirdly beginning uh, believing in help and the possibility of there being sort of a Mm. separate, distinct, external or greater help Mm. even available. You know, wonderful principles to embrace. It means I spend a lot of time around drug addicts, people that are facing sort of trauma and living through personal trauma. And it, again, it's a sort of, uh, I mean, this in a sort of literal sense, very anarchic kind of organisation, leaderless, mm. fully, fully, properly democratic, prince, you know, like not by, like individuals less important than the collective purpose, uh, groups fully, auto- all groups fully autonomous except for matters that affect the, uh, enti- the entire system, you know, or negatively impact other groups so it's like it's got some very very beautiful principles um that i and, and like i meet and spend it's very time. teal that teal is it mm, that mm. yeah yeah sound teal based on what you told me about them dutch uh, compassionate nursing ideas a minute ago so like the, um i mentioned all of this only to say that um 
my mate Mick the Roofer said talking about politics. You know, people talk about Jer- Jeremy Corbyn or Boris Johnson. Well, unless they have a spiritual awakening, it ain't going to make no fucking difference, is it? And like for all of the conversation around the dominant issues of our day, of our day, people seldom take time, in my opinion, to acknowledge that in EU, out of the EU, Donald Trump or not Donald Trump, all of these things are housed within a prohibitive system. You know, and for for all of the passion, which I've got, you know, I understand it and I've got no problem with anyone's perspective in Brexit, out Brexit. It's not my, I've got no dog Mm. in that fight. But like, I feel that, well, currently we're in the EU. (laughs) People are still (laughs) spilled onto the streets. The planet is still being, this can only be an emblematic issue. It can only be a symbol. You know, so one of the things that I'm attracted to about Extinction Rebellion is the conversation confronting of truth the acknowledgement of real trauma the things that i'm interested in in terms of you know sort of curious about and not averse to participating in because any successful system is going to be you know um, it's going to involve all of us but uh, is um how this is i thought this with occupy also and i thought it about other things like when i like my my initial attraction to activism gail was like i fucking like a bit of chaos you know or, you know like a sort of or at least i feel unhappy somehow and when i saw chaos and disruption i was attracted it was a dockers march the mm, first thing mm. that i it happened to sort of i was walking past and i got sucked into it nearly ended up getting arrested and like but like my i feel that no disrespect to sort of um you know the sort of left-wing heritage and all the wonderful achievements of the left and activism through the left but it's sort of lack of spiritual principles is definitely something that needs to be incorporated but um talking about at least how to touch again on something we've already discussed about extinction rebellion the incorporation of mm, what do i want to say sort of well i want to say people that are not currently engaged by extinction rebellion rebellion let's say sort of like a um working class people of all colors but like that are balls deep in poverty the military and the police i wonder how these what kind of uh, relationships you having with the police and not the military at all presumably but the, with the police so far how do how do they seem to be affected by it um because you said a lot then didn't you yeah and i had to get it out <laughs> um what one of the things i want to say is our mutual friend jamie kelsey fry talks about it's like humanity's got this violin in front of it and it's banging it with a spoon (laughs) we could just pick it up and play it there's something that's meant to come i believe um or not who knows but that's and and this movement's made of so many different people contributing uh behind the scenes and that you're right like the some of us are more visible but it's like again quoting jamie it's the people at four in the morning who are emptying the piss buckets out on the when we're on the streets at like hold this thing together um yeah and i've just lost my thread oh the police one of the things i did want to say is we do have some ex-coppers retired coppers and one of them got arrested i think uh rob stevens got arrested and that's made a difference and we also talk to the police uh we have a a strategic relationship with the police where we sort of tell them what we're going to do because they're going to find out anyway uh so we organize what you call above the ground and that's um upset some people because they think 
you know, there's this concept of ACAB, you know, all coppers are bastards. That's Yeah, to be that. adversarial. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I wonder when you said about the Dockers that you really were attracted to the chaos. I can see that. But it's also that kind of, there's an edge of power there, isn't there, when you're together, you know. I think there's that, like, finally, you know, I like if there's something that is really still sitting in my body, it's the humiliation of the working class people through the like miners strike you know that people did their best to resist change to resist neoliberalism really and then you know what happened was like absolute yeah it was wasn't it um so we have lawyers uh, who've gone into rebellion we've got doctors have gone into rebellion we've got teachers we've got um former police officers you know there's um, so I think the I think the different demographics are coming. You know, they'll be they'll be builders for the rebellion, and it's just somebody needs to start it essentially. Mm. Yeah. When I'm, uh, um, well, I feel like we've got to start reclaiming football clubs, and uh, union... that's already started. Foot football for XR. There's some people <laughs> on that one. Yeah. Yeah. I I suppose like um. Whilst the, uh, the, I like um, and respect the framing, uh, uh, not necessarily framing because it's just explicit communication of an ecological crisis. That, um, I, I like, it's, it's interesting and apposite that that's at the forefront. We know, and I know that you talk about the, this, what's exacerbating, creating these conditions are sort of abstract financial models and economic systems. Um, What's your thought about how to... Do you think that there are more direct ways of opposing it or, or more direct ways of highlighting it? I, in ter- perhaps, for example, points where a- um, action takes place. You know, remember like, Occupy was very focused on the financial industry. Well, we did do an action at the city. There was an action at BP headquarters, I think. There's a, actually an action at the National Trust today. National Trust? Oh, yeah. Who funds it? Um, no, no, I think because they haven't really come out in opposition to things like HS2, they're going to deforest. You know, it's the biggest. What is big, HS2? High speed train that's costing the taxpayers, as they call, which we're all taxpayers, by the way, but not just some people, um, because of it's built into VAT and stuff, into all products. Yeah, it's it's basically this. It's like an airport shuttle service dressed up to be a fast train. And um, obviously, we need to invest in railways. But with that one, they're going to deforest um, Britain bigger than World War One. That's the plan. And, you know, yeah, it just did make me so um, angry if I'm tr- truthful about that. And I don't feel rage in a way that like drives me in an unhealthy way, I don't think. But I did shinny up allegedly the department for transport last week and take a little hammer and chisel to their window which um just because i wanted to first of all say that the british government is committing crimes against humanity the front line of the ecological crisis is at least four hundred thousand people a year are dying 26 people are dying a day of air pollution there'll be the more in more disadvantaged communities in the uk as well um, and they're planning further crimes against humanity because of the policies that they're doing. They don't literally don't have a plan at the minute of how we're going to hit this net zero by 2050. No. And the only way they can get away... It's interesting, actually, Russell. It's just the only way they can get to uh, 2050 in what's called the carbon budget, which, in all honesty, there is no carbon budget because we've already put too much carbon in the atmosphere. But if you accept there is, they have to cut 
the carbon emissions by 24% annually and it's 1.5% at the minute. So the only way they could do that is to have a really radical plan. And if they did it linearly, it would take us to 2025 anyway. But um, So the only way they can justify it is by sucking the carbon out later, um, you know, hoping that these machines are going to come along that can do it, you know, whilst deforesting the things that already suck carbon out of the atmosphere. You see how the madness of this system, right? But the problem with climate science is these like tipping points. So once there's so much heat happening, then things run away. So like the ice starts melting, the permafrost melts, the boreal forest, the Amazon forest starts burning down, net carbon sinks start carbon emitters. It's like an, it's a nightmare. It's a runaway train. It's like domino effect, however you want to picture it. So the British government at the minute is not telling the truth and, and um, it's not preventing existential risks to to the right to life so the breaking article two of the european convention of human rights in 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 the opinion of some lawyers so you know i've done a bigger act of civil disobedience recently with damage in a window they said it cost about twenty eight thousand pounds pricey so, i know for Who's one doing pain. your glazing <laughs> not <laughs> everest <laughs> so you know that is quite a serious bit of civil disobedience that I've just done but you know part of it was to highlight the OCAV review was just coming for the HS2 thing and they're going to report at the end of the month and you know prayers that they're going to stop that and use that money a hundred billion it's unfeasible isn't it they've already spent like seven or eight billion and kick people out of their houses and businesses and stuff it's just one of these things where there's it's like snouts around the trough is the way it looks to me with these big infrastructure projects you know does it actually make sense is it where the money most needs to be spent obviously not people must not have a belief that it's possible for the world to be more beautiful and for life to be more connected when you were talking about the 12 steps and I thought, God, we really should start mapping Extinction Rebellion strategy against those because that's what we've done, isn't it? First of all, let's face that there's a problem. Secondly, let's realise that we, we need help with it. We can't do this on our own, you know, and believe that change is possible. And I think that's, you know, what we call vision holding. Um, for me, there, that vision already exists in humanity. Um, it's called Tikkun Olam in the Jewish faith, the idea that you stop and you repair harm or Ubuntu in Africa. And so there's a way of holding up a vision. I think we have to just get so strongly tell each of this story of like, you know, because people will recognise this emergency because it is and it is coming and there'll be worse weather of, uh, events. And I don't know if you know, like the there's academics from Anglia Ruskin University said that um, there'll be social collapse by 2040 because of food shortages and now the latest paper last this year, only this year, said it's coming sooner uh, from NASA. Um, it's called multi-bread basket failure in the academic world. It's like the food producing areas of the world, one will hit drought, one hits too much rain and flooding or whatever. These issues are coming for sure and it's about El Nino events and how often they happen. So anyway, social collapse is is pretty inevitable according to many commentators this is what david attenborough has even talked about so the point is do you go in the direction of less democracy fascism war fighting over scarce resources or do we pull together as a people and say fucking uh. hell look what we've done it's like having a mad addicts party isn't it and we've got to say shit look at the mess we've made right everybody we all come together and do something about this it's going to be not as bad as it was you know it's going to uh, um, and uh, you know you always have to mention the fact there are people dying today, you know, so I'm very much speaking to like Western democracies and that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because that's so the, the transition to um, fascism 
and people having less freedom seems like a, an easier transition, like a more likely transition in that you can see it's uh, emergent tendrils, yes, the yes, sapling absolutely. version of yeah. like, let's just clamp down on this shit. There's and- 14 indicators of fascism. And when you work through them, you think, oh, they're all here. Rising misogyny, you know, rising nationalism, rising militarism. They're already in the room, you know. I keep saying, like, fascism doesn't look like people dressed up as in funny costumes doing funny hands. Yeah, that's unless period. They're, unless, they're, unless they're fetishists and they're into <laughs> that, you know. But it, 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 it looks like what's already happening. And it is, there is, when people are in fear, when they're in their left brain, going back to the trauma, mm. then they want an authoritative figure to tell them what to do. Yeah. Did you see the blog from D- Douglas Rushkoff in the book? There were billionaires that have started. This is this professor of technology. He's been in here. Yeah, he's cool, isn't he? So he got given half his salary to adva- do some advice. He thought it was going to be to a room full of investors. You know, should should they invest in artificial intelligence or robotics or whatever? And instead, it was five guys from the upper echelons of the hedge funds, and they were talking about the event. That you know, the elites call it the event when society collapses, and it could be the finance systems wobbling at the minute. The bond and stock prices are tracking uh. each other. Shouldn't be doing that. Some summit's going a bit astray, and they're not talking about it in the mainstream anyway. System collapse. So they, t- so these guys were building bunkers, and they wanted to know where to buy land and be safe. And one was saying, like, shall I start electrocuting my guards, or will the robots be ready by then? And having a conversation like that, how mad is that? How how in despair is that? So we need to lift up a real prayerful vision. I think of saying, you know, we can stop harm in the world, and we can start to do the repairing. We need the family to come back together. And I think one of the key issues going back to that diversity piece will be for like the white middle class majority who are focused in extinction rebellion to uh open hearts enough to notice where that we've been separated from bits of our family you know it's like bringing the family back together to say i know we're, we've all fucked up but we need each other now because we're yeah. going to need each other for all that river cleaning tree planting there's going to have to be quite a lot of forgiveness and coalescence Yes, that's interesting, the awareness of that crisis. That's why I suppose it's important to encourage a climate of nihilism, meaninglessness, individualism and materialism so that when the event occurs, people don't go, oh, well, we best have recourse now into our spiritual paradigm where we recognise our oneness, that we're no longer... Because, you know, it's curious when we talk about uh, the kind of communities that I think we would both like to see further engaged in uh, social activism. That uh, I, I feel that these are the people that can be most effective. I feel that these are the people that have got most to gain. I feel that these are the people that are suffering most. I have a curious recollection of an early uh, event I attended. It was a May Day event. It didn't go well for me. Uh, I would have got. I did get arrested actually. There, I was very silly as a, a, a younger man. And uh, like uh, I remember seeing football hooligans there, just there for the row. Some, I liked something about it. I thought they were, he was Millwall, one particular lad, England shirt, smashing up a shop window. I thought, you know, the commitment to nonviolence, absolutely vital, not least because, as you explained to me prior to our chat beginning, it's the most effective means for bringing about change. However, I'm, you know, I'm very interested in the reemergence of nationalism and what's known as the alt-right. Because I feel this, you know, like you said just then about that sort of a reconciliation of a family, this, com- mm. this coming mm. together. I feel like th- th- we need this energy. 
We need it's back this to that spiral dynamics we're talking about the different consciousnesses. So that, that's in the red layer, isn't it? The tribal layer. Oh. And there's nothing wrong with that inherently to feel like a, a duty and to want to serve something bigger than yourself. Yeah. You know, there's an honour in that. You know, there's a kind of um, a beauty in it. It's just when it's used for the wrong purpose. That's always the point here, isn't it? What's the purpose? What's yes, the yes. intention? What is the purpose? What is the purpose? Um, it, it, are you, are you going to, you know, when people are into their family values you know like yeah like well what future are your grandchildren your own children gonna have like let's tap into those values but it, again it's the purpose you know are you trying to get them in private school so they get a better job or are you realizing that like they won't have a job because there's no jobs on the fucking dead planet sort of thing yeah yeah we have to give to before there can be any taking i sense there needs to be the feeling that um that the participation is going to be welcomed and um i'm just keep thinking about um rage i mean and the, anger. The, the lot of emotion like anger is quite a relatively superficial emotion generally what's underneath it is a lot of grief that yes, needs to be of, held you it's know? interesting the way that people broadcast the way that the, the kind of as if there's a kind of a distortion of the actual frequency but what, I, what it is i'm considering is the sort of isn't it curious that the group uh, the cultural demographic that displays this uh, sort of retro nationalism would likely have descended from uh, uh, cultural groups that were fed patriotic ideas two or three generations ago so that they would go and kill for the concept of a nation so, sure. oh we've moved on now that's not important anymore forget yeah. that reprogram reprogram yeah, don't yeah. be nationalistic like so sort of, and like you said it's like that the energy in it, I, I like this um, sort of this analytic rubric of uh, color coding that you're using teal and red and as if the whole palette can be used in, at, at particular times that there is nothing inherently negative about tribalism merely its focus that that this is like that how do we utilize this energy again to Jamie Kelsey Fry's uh, violin analogy that's a there's some important notes exactly being played by exactly. people that are exactly. feeling imprisoned in poverty that feel uh, castrated and lost and as if the ideals of what maleness was you know, first they lost their agricultural jobs then they lost their industrial jobs now they're losing their nationalism now they're being told that there's this rise of feminism they've got to get in line and the words they use aren't the right kind of words and football's got to change yeah. <laughs> you know, like, that's, these people where we must generate the love we must represent the vision the vision yeah. must become clear do you know I'm having a terrible thought here? I'm thinking, because they're like sitting there thinking these hippie lasses like me with the hairy armpits, you know, like with us, there's like a separation, isn't there? But I bet they're better in bed with all that raw energy, do you know? <laughs> <laughs> Come on down, boys, do you know what I mean? I've found it to be true <laughs> myself. <laughs> the Chelsea headhunters in particular, a lot of vigour in the lower abdomen. <laughs> yeah, a lot of lower chakra heat. <laughs> Them boys, the ICF. Yeah. I agree because I have great faith in the idea that people can overcome uh, constructed bigotry around the way that people identify and people's sexuality. This, I think, is just education and experience. I think once people go, look, look come on, for fuck's sake, <laughs> that doesn't matter to you. Yeah, That's not yeah. relevant. It doesn't matter how people dress or what they do or if they're Muslim or not. What matters is power and not power. Control of your life, no control yeah, of life. Yeah. Interaction with community, meaningful existence, purpose-driven life. You know, don't get distracted. Stop spending all your time thinking 
thinking about both I think the issues. more you're sort of separated, the easier it is to run hate as a as a narrative. Like, so, you know, a lot of the mechanisms that we're using to develop Extinction Rebellion, they're built on what's called momentum-driven organising. The Tea Party use it as well. But they use hatred as a fuel. But when you're with somebody, it's quite hard to be, like, hateful to somebody who's right in your face. I mean, it can be. It can happen. Yeah. You can get triggered. Don't get me wrong. But, like, it's much more fun to have a laugh, isn't it? That's like a proper working class thing, isn't it? You just have a laugh with somebody. And um, when we were, you know, we took over Marble Arch in the April Rebellion, this people had knocked up a kitchen and people were doing live music, you know, just banging some tunes out on a guitar and that. That's what everybody wants, really, I think, is yes. to have a laugh, to be with other people, to fit, you know, the, the power of saying, fuck it, we're just going to do this in the road, you know, we're not waiting for permission. I think, like, that, there's a latent desire for that. So, you know, I just think it's for Extinction Rebellion to get strong enough and to get into other communities, not get it, like it is emerging in those, like I can see it in my own hometown and that there's like groups happening. Was that Stroud? No, no, well, I live in oh, Stroud in Gloucestershire, but oh. um, yeah, I migrated to the south, but I'm from um, South Yorkshire, West Yorkshire border. South Emsel I'm from actually which is um, like the desolate north isn't it all the coal mines and all that around there so but you know somebody was telling me there was a letter in the local paper about the environmental crisis and Extinction Rebellion I didn't I don't know who wrote it you know it's 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 happening that the consciousness is shifting and I think it's um, mm. the, the more we mm. the more we make it delightful I mean there's been moments in Extinction Rebellion when the police were in tears you know, because they can't... I, when I gave my interview and I was telling you about that civil disobedience that I allegedly did, the, I, I did a, a long piece for the police officers, the CID officers that were interviewing me. It's two youngish women. And to be honest, the woman couldn't actually finish the interview because she was so shaken. When you tell people what's the situation, it's a shock, you know. And then if you say, like, this is where the change comes and you model it and you do it together and you have fun together, like, this system has got no... It's reliant on our complicity, isn't it, and our letting it happen. So if, going back to, like, you were talking about the finance system, and, I mean, I think a place I'd like to see Extinction Rebellion going next is refusing to pay our debts off, you know, or taking on debts and giving the money to somebody who needs it and that sort of That's thing. That's interesting. Deliberately take on some debts, then renege on them, give that money that you've got off of... Um apparently committing a fraud by the way so i didn't say that <laughs> this is a hypothetical situation yes, that we're discussing that, that, so it, it, hypothetically you could borrow some money from a high street bank give that to uh, your example earlier when we were chatting with like some indigenous people who are you know on the front line of where that bank's investing their money it's so called you know raping the earth again and just you know because that i've been with some investment bankers recently so interestingly one of them my friend hilton was saying um, I keep saying we're going to have to sit down have a bottle of wine Hilton talk about capitalism at some point because he thinks he's a capitalist and then he was saying to me you know what Gail the best investment I made I didn't make any money and he also puts his money in things like um, uh, waste treatment where it's I can't remember the word, but basically you get energy out of the waste, not not burning it, not that stuff. Um, oh, anyway, but so but he was saying this is what I most liked investing in. I was about Hilton. That's driven by purpose, not by profit. 
that isn't to me the definition of capitalism it's driven by profit not purpose that doesn't mean you have to get rid of the entire market system or anything but you just need to have a grown-up conversation across the finance system about like why are we killing life on earth you know why are we in the sixth mass extinction event why are we taking ourselves on this pathway where like seven million people could die if we hit four degrees c you know these they're like biblical you have to use biblical language when you're describing what's coming with the ecological crisis and to face that as a parent in particular um do you know about you might be interested in this actually russell do you know about um uh what's it called um there's a psychological theory called it's it's about the fact that we're a death phobic culture oh no tell me and you because you don't want to face death and dying you are more wanting to be in a culture that helps you to deal with the concept of death and dying in a way that you don't have to face it whereas if you face it because you realize that you're not like actually a real thing you're just like a, const- a gale the universe galen then dying's no big deal is it i don't worry about it but um so it, it's called um it's, it's 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 to do with the avoidance of trauma um I've, I've forgotten the words i'll remember it afterwards but because we're death phobic you would this is the th- hypothesis you would rather your children die than um have your culture attacked that protects you from the fear of death i mean you get your head around. you'd mm. rather so the examples that would generally be given would be like in the mayan civilization they threw their kids off the top of towers as like an offering or something mm. and because they believed that was for the best and it was all in the culture and it you know kept them from mm. having to face um face the trauma of death and dying whereas um or you might say like a maybe like a muslim woman whose son blows himself up you know in in service to something and oh well then he's going to be with Allah and it's fine you know they're like somehow you're attached to your culture and I think it's it's one thing to point the fingers at these other cultures but actually the consumer capitalist culture when you try to talk to parents about what it's doing and what it's going to leave for their children there's like a, a shot has come down you don't want to hear it it's too and I think literally this system is going to mean that your children are likely to be starving in a few years time and and you know you, you're you're shutting that out. I think it's possibly, a psychological theory about uh, it. Yes, yeah, interesting. I think what it creates is a sense of impotence and powerlessness that's difficult to contend with. And I feel that it maybe short circuits people's ability to rationalise this attitude and relationship that we have with death the unknown, the potentially unknowable without access to certain wisdom traditions or shamanic ideas or particular devotion or principles of meditation. It's kind of the culmination of our um, idea of ourselves as material individuals. I feel that at one end of what we're discussing there is this great optimism in me that there's almost a single moment and a single point of ignition within the consciousness of each individual where we recognize that transition can occur Mm. instantaneously through disobedience, Mm. through non-participation in systems that are punitive. Mm. That when people recognize that the cause of ecological crisis, the cause for poverty 
the cause for prejudice and condemnation is the same thing. Not individual people, but <clears throat> a kind of viral idea that like a phantom is inhabiting the minds of the powerful. That the, the potential for significant resistance, for meaningful change, will become realised of the many things that I, I, we've discussed today and that I've seen you uh, uh, talk about elsewhere, the principle of loving acceptance of people that you disagree with seems to me to be a, an, an important one. And I've just noticed since I've changed direction in my own life, part of which might, from the outside, who knows, seem like a, like a sort of a separating, but was actually been sort of like becoming a father, rooting so much of my life was at this poor eternist shooting heavenward and a pursuit and ego and individual driven. And, and, and now there's this sort of rooting and a recognition of humility and not acknowledgement of relative insignificance, these kind of things. Since, they, they, since I've uh, um, been edified by these kind of changes and this kind of uh, um, learning, I've, like even when I watch, as I was before you arrived, Boris Johnson on the TV or Nigel Farage, I like don't feel anger anymore. Mm. I don't feel kind. Of, I kind of like people. Mm. I kind of like people. And when I spoke to you know Brené Brown, she's mm. brilliant. Yeah, yeah. She like talked about her difficulty in accepting that people are trying their best. People are trying their best. That doesn't like, you know, and I, I do believe people are trying their best. I think Boris Johnson is doing what he, the best he can with what he's got. I think Donald Trump's doing the best he can with what he's got. That doesn't mean that we have to accept it at the expense of our children's mm -hmm. future or the rights of human beings to live in loving communities that are the realization of their essence as individuals and collectively. But I feel that by sort of by broadcasting, I felt this once when we were at, um, you know, like I know you were involved as because you, you told me uh, in the sort of occupation of Parliament Square when I was going on TV a lot and talking about politics. And, and around that time, I think there was a sort of a people's assembly around, um, you know, austerity or whatever. And I remember talking there and I felt we are broadcasting the uh, opposition frequency to you know to the houses of parliament like i thought like it's the, we're doing the same thing yeah it's, it's a mirror the, then isn't it it's yeah. a mirror it's not a sort yeah. of a I, th I think any place when you're in the separation and there's a place where you are somehow feeling quite powerless and waggling a finger at somebody you know one of the things we say in extinction rebellion is no blame and shaming it's one of our principles and values of course we do it all the time and we get it wrong but i think that's really important there's a and you're talking about um a transition journey for individuals it's a classic monomyth isn't it the hero's journey again you see a lot of that in extinction rebellion for individuals doing that piece and then there's a sort of collective way of doing that and I think the culture we're in and I know you've talked about this a lot is so narcissistic it's and and but other cultures exist uh, that have a deep sense of ancestors and a deep sense of the next seven generations and you're just in this flow of life and you're just going to be around for a while so like why would you want to you know you, if you if you're in service to life then you see it in all its richness don't you and that not there to to feel i mean yeah i just that that, that whole oppositional piece doesn't 
you need to oppose behaviours. But it's like a parent with some of this stuff. I do think with the upper classes, you know, because they're so traumatised by the um, public school system. I've got a friend who that's their therapy that they do is working on the wound of having been to, you know, into these I don't know why they call them public schools. It's a bit weird phrase, isn't it? But they've been sent off age seven, separated, and then there's all that stuff. I mean, I know not everybody has a bad time, but it's a wound, isn't it? I did feel that with the medicines once. It's like, you know, when you get into the... Have you been in the depths of despair, like, properly? In the, I've had that twice, once on a um, on the uh, Vipassana meditation retreat and once with the aboga taster session thing. But it's... a so clear the despair and then it's like a it's like a vacuum and I think you could either fill it with love or you could fill it with power Mm. and I feel like that's what must have happened to some people it's just like this into despair and then here's what you can do is feel power as an alternative to feeling love um, like you said before, that uh, the Thatcher quote that, that economics is the means to create a change of heart and mind is that now we almost have fully accepted our roles as workers and consumers, not participate participants in a lineage, not participants in a tribe. We are unable to conceptualize that. But how could we conceptualize that without ceremony, ritual, structure, without positive experience of our oneness and our togetherness, both on the level of the as we've discussed somewhat earlier the transcendence of individual identity and the recognition of that as a construct and the possibility of realizing collective and social groups around positive principles two ideas that i return to continually are the a quote from gandhi at the on the cusp of independence that you know india is a country of 70,000 villages they should all be fully autonomous and into trading where required and he and he went on to say but and this is obviously in the 40s or whatever we have to tackle our infatuation and fetishization of objects and consuming and gadgetry he probably mm. called it and how that's been extrapolated over time this fixation with objects and comfort and consuming these tiny meaningless prisons well i just I, you know i just feel like each one of these things are dripping a bit of dopamine at some stage don't you onto your sort of anxiousness but like I, i'm wondering if you're feeling this as a parent you know there's something in the way we live these days that just so don't make sense you know is anybody really enjoying it <laughs> you know like you're in these little boxes especially your mum trying to get the tea on and you know that there's like down the road like there's like 50 other yeah. people on the same fucking street in the same and the kids are all going ah because they're, they're supposed to be packing like pack animals kids aren't they yeah um and yeah it just doesn't make sense how we're living and who's really enjoying it actually yeah. i mean really can we not do we need to get that violin out don't we and play it a bit better oh <sighs> All right, Gail, I think that was a good interview. Do you think it was a good interview? We've been talking for one hour and 20 minutes. We've talked about the spiritual aspect. We've talked about, we didn't really get to the bit, although you did sort of talk about mapping uh, the Extinction Rebellion onto sort of a 12-step paradigm. We didn't really talk about starting an adjacent system of governance through people's assembly and that there are valid alternatives and the repression, suppression, denial and criticism of those alternatives is an integral part of the maintenance of the systems that... I mean, I think it's... one of the things I was thinking when you were talking earlier is if we're just getting the stuff in now on, that mate. might have been missing is uh, yes I obviously very clearly believe that a spiritual 
holding is necessary but spirituality can come from a an existential perspective you know it doesn't have it can be quite philosophical as well yeah it don't but, need to be prescribed people don't have to get into the feathers or setting fire to stuff if that's yeah, not their bag yeah yeah i do like a few feathers me though, too why not um but um but I, I think also there's just very practical things that people can see, like a, a citizens' assembly already happened in in Ireland on the abortion issue, right? So oh, yeah. It, it, the, 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 this is a form of democracy. This is so citizen. So. Um, Extinction Rebellion has got three demands. We want the government to tell the truth and act as if it's real, you know, get rid of policies that don't make any sense and work to communicate that crisis to people so they really understand it. And that, again, that it's not the, my favourite analogy, but it'd be, it'd be a bit like a war, as in you're saying, look, this is how bad it is, And but really we've been at war with nature, we need to sort it out. The second thing is a rapid decarbonisation and stopping the biodiversity loss. So we say net zero by 2025, that means you're all in to, to sort the situation out again you'd probably have to do like a wartime economy and then the third thing is how do you what what actual things do you do well we want to do that through a citizens assembly because the other two things i've just said potentially give the state a lot of power and one of the risks is eco-fascism you know like um the handmaid's tale type of situation i'm not up for that myself um so um what what you would then want is to hand a lot more power to people and so we want a legally binding citizens assembly and it would by random selection a bit like a jury you'd select people who represent the demographics and the age demographics and the different race gender whatever of the uk and then they would be given critical thinking skills are supported to go through a facilitated process with experts and it's you know i like this idea how long do they stay in it? I think it goes on for um, a few months, months over yeah, several weekends. A couple weekends, of months go. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, uh, it's a very deep dive thing. And how many people? I think it's about 100, but I'm not the expert in the in the Citizens' Assembly. And We need more. Yeah. Well, I mean, it would be great to have a Citizens' Assembly about democracy itself and a constitutional reform. This is the old form of Greek democracy. In, in Greece, they didn't do voting very often. You know, I, felt, I think that's the least interesting political thing that anybody can ever do is vote for somebody. I mean, I'm not saying don't do it, but, you know, more interesting is get on the streets. That's a political act. More interesting is have these other forms of democracy. Um, when you're organising your rebellion in your local community, use people's assemblies. You know, there's lots of things that we can teach people. So we're like prefiguring the future. This is, this is these are the changes that need to come. You know, let's have uh, mm. ways in which communities organise their finances around the rebellion. There's all these types of things. I'd like so, the idea of this this inclusivity. I a couple of homeless people in there. I want yeah. far right racists. Yeah, yeah, totally. Everyone in there yeah. talking and slowly realising. Hold on a minute, we're all the same. Because otherwise, yeah, it is an extraordinary little egg box that we've selected up there in those green and mahogany rooms that haunt our screens it's a nonsense it yeah. is a, it's a real nonsense and actually it's been a real strength of extinction rebellion roger hallam's idea from the start was we've never said we want um you know carbon taxes or carbon budgeting or we want veganism or regenerative agriculture these are all things that are you know could could be or we want this kind of techno fix or whatever we just don't take a position on things and obviously different people in the movement have different ideas about what's a good idea but 
it's not for us to say, is it? Because we're a self-selected group. We're just literally saying we've got to get our power and have this conversation. And then we want the British people to decide. And I think that's where those that want to paint us as like extremist, anarchist, whatever, anti-capitalists have a bit of an issue because we, we're never like saying we're anti this. We're just saying, look, we've got this massive <coughs> problem. Let's talk about it. And let's let people, ordinary people decide. It's that actually quite extreme. normal. It is normal. And anarchy isn't extreme. What we're living in now is an, is extremism but it's just that it, it's so extreme there is no visible horizon you can't envisage what might lie beyond it anarchism just means democracy for everyone involvement for everyone in the decisions that affect your lives there's nothing to be scared of like you said earlier Gal. what is it we're clinging on to in this this solipsistic grip we have on our tiny tidy terrifying lives Fucking hell. All right. Well, well, that was a nice chat. Do you feel like you've said everything you want to say? Yeah, I reckon. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Gail. Thank you. Thank you for listening to me and Gail Bradbrook just there. Remember to follow me about if you ever see me drifting through a suburban precinct. No, follow me on online social media platforms, not platforms. And also sign up at russellbrand.com for my mailing list. And if you need help of any kind, just send an email, help at Russell Brand. And I, I can't promise that I'll respond to every email, but I do promise I'll read every single one. I've read some great emails. In fact, let's start reading them out on this podcast. Yeah. You should have thought of that, Jen. We'll be From now on, we'll be reading them out on this podcast, different emails from you. You can ask me questions. You can do what you like. Jen, don't be put off just because my costumed feet. I'm in costume at the moment. You wouldn't believe what I look like. I can't even tell you what I look like. I'm making a film. It would astonish you. What would you describe it as, Jen? A bank manager gone wrong. A bank manager gone wrong. So there, I'll leave you with that image. Thank you for listening to me, Russell Brand, and the show Under the Skin from Luminary Media. Oh, I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome Simon the new chairman of Luminary Media. Welcome on board, Simon. Welcome to the chair. And great work, all of you, running Luminary Media. We love and appreciate your work and your support of our show. Thank you.